0: Welcome to Teachers Talk Texts, the podcast where English teachers share their insights and interpretations of texts currently studied in BCE English. I'm your host, Claire Mackey. Let's dive into today's episode. Uh, hello, Lisa and Cora. Thank you so very much for joining me today and being so kind to give up your time today to talk all things rear window, Hitchcock's uh, pivotal. Pivotal film, I think it's fair enough to say. Uh, and as I start with all texts, my first question to you is, why do you love Rear Window?
1: Hitchcock's Rear Window is really a joy for teachers. So Big um, have really done us a, you know, a favour in placing this on the text list because it is, although produced in 1954, it's in many ways more pertinent for a young modern audience today than ever and it's because it's really about somebody watching somebody and us watching him watching others and so in many ways it's as relevant as ever so although produced in the McCarthy era the context in which we are teaching it now is to students who are incredibly savvy consumers of media and one of the great challenges for teachers is to encourage our students to be conscious of the biases that they're being presented with, to question and check um, their own reality and their own positions. And this encourages students to look at the concept of being a viewer, of how the author shapes the views and values and presents their own views and values and shapes them for the viewer. And it asks the students to question uh, how they're being positioned and how the gaze is being directed and, you know, the dance that they really enter into with the producer and, and how the author is positioning them to think and feel.
0: I think of, of any of the texts, it's the one that is most consciously a construction and actively it forces on students the realisation that they are part of the construct, which maybe no other text now I think about it on the text list does in that moment that World looks back at us in the film, which I'm sure we will get to in detail later. Yes. But I I really like that idea that the reason why you love the film, Lisa, is is in its teachability, and, it, yes. and in its meaning, its deeper meaning for students, as opposed to perhaps the narrative, because that's really uh, you know not not perhaps as relevant when we're studying this film. But rather than me talk so much, I'm not I'm not here to listen to. To Claire, uh, Cora, why why do you why do you love the film?
2: I was just going to lead off from what both of you have just said. Is that I think what's really cool about the film is that it seems to work on two levels, right? There's kind of like if you're just a normal viewer, you're just like, oh man, this is awesome suspense thriller film, um, and that's enjoyable for that reason. But then what Lisa is saying here about it being a really teachable film and a great film also to teach is that it does function on this other level of you know it's been produced in this McCarthyist era. Um, it's all about you know is it right to watch other people you know is it right to surveil other people is it is it okay to I guess judge people without any evidence first and I think those kind of big ideas are what make this text really interesting and I think with what Lisa was saying also about students being really kind of savvy consumers we can see that even with like kind of modern media today as well it's like YouTube and people watching others doing things I think it's kind of a kind of you know, an early kind of version of watching, you know, vloggers follow them, what they do on their days and things like that. So I think it's kind of, yeah, way ahead of its time actually, which is actually really interesting as well.
0: Hitchcock definitely was predicting what would what would come, what has come to be because we we are, we're obsessed with watching people in our world and we might judge Jeff or, and this is a question, does does Hitchcock position us to judge Jeff, but we all
1: do it. It, it turns out to be an incredibly pertinent text to study during isolation and lockdown. I was about <laughs> to say that too. Enough, in the time
2: of COVID and you know Daniel right. Andrews lockdowns and yeah, Kathy's, yes. it's very so. Rude.
1: In some ways, it's forced. It, it's forced a connectedness within our own four walls and within our own smaller communities, within our own villages. You know, the kids are now posting things on TikTok where they're doing songs and dances with their families and, you know, little skits of the very ordinary at home. The ordinary has now become the extraordinary. And it is funny that we've now got this very pertinent parallel between Jeff watching others within his own, you know, the confines of his own home, you know, forced only to see what he can see through the rear window And we are living now this sort of shared experience of watching others while we're stuck at home, watching what they are doing within their own home through YouTube and TikTok and, you know, all the other mediums that the kids are using.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Even I know I'm a member of my my local community's Facebook group, you know, just to, to, I guess, ostensibly to stay connected in a time when we're so isolated, which is another one of Hitchcock's um, you know messages in the film that all these people are so physically they're in close physical proximity to each other and yet hugely like disconnected. And yet within that group there's a lot of people pointing at pointing out the transgressions of others.
2: Yes. Uh, you know, I
0: <laughs> they're saw some obsessed kids, with it. Right? People at the dog park with
1: without their masks on. And, yes. yeah. yeah.
0: And we don't know we don't know what's going on for that person. We don't but yet we're the 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 feeling at the moment is that of that maybe that same McCarthyist fear it's paranoia we're not afraid of the communists we're afraid of the corona yeah
1: Um, (laughs) and it is I mean I think the the zeitgeist at the moment is us watching people and policing their behaviors and looking for deviations from the norm because Mm. we feel quite righteous about how we're doing the right thing uh, and then we become quickly sanctimonious when others aren't, which is mm. what w- we see in those Facebook community groups.
0: Mm. And uh, that's what, about, would you agree that's Jeff? He is a bit sanctimonious about his behaviour. He's being
2: a enforcer, isn't he, of like kind of the status quo. He's saying this is how people should be, this is what people should be doing. And then he's got very strict, I guess, ideals or values of how people should be behaving um, and you can see that even with his relationship with Lisa, How
0: I like that. So this, this idea that he, you said he's... Yeah, he sees
2: her in one way. He sees her as this kind of beautiful, rich, you know, socialite, when really mm-hmm. she's the one that's pivotal in the whole kind of figuring out what Thor- Thorwald is doing. You know, she's the one that has the instinct about the handbag and, you know, the she's the one intuitions. that goes into the apartment. So yeah. she's actually not who she appears to be on the surface, you know, from Jeffrey's point of view. So I guess if we're making those parallels between, you know, that and Corona, like you were saying earlier, people aren't always how they appear. There might be a reasons, a reason or I don't know, a purpose for why they're doing things that we don't I don't know, agree with or see on the surface, I guess,
1: or understand. Yes. Well, I think Jeff's a really fascinating character because he really encapsulates the struggle of kind of modern masculinity. Mm. So, as Cora says, he, he has this kind of sneering, sanctimonious judgment of his neighbours. But, of course, the reality is that he's trapped. So, you know, trapped within his own four walls. And what we see is his, his anxiety about his male identity and so he resorts to spying on his neighbours to reassure himself that he's still powerful. He's still in control. He's got this kind of sneering judgment about their failed relationship or about their lack of relationship while he's kind of sitting back and, and waiting with this lack of commitment for this very beautiful Lisa Fremont who's fussing over him. And really he has this you know, terrible sort of fear of commitment, this inability to commit and instead feels much more comfortable judging others while watching, you know, trapped in the confines of his wheelchair. So um, really what's fascinating about Jeff is his, um, his impotence. He's really powerless and gains his power from watching and judging others.
2: And hypocritical also because he is unable to notice his own drawbacks. Yes. So he's willing to really kind of, you know, his career is a photojournalist, all he does is kind of look and capture, well, that's his job, uh, mm-hmm. but he's unable, he's always looking outward, right? He's never able to actually look inward and be like, okay, these are my issues, these are my kind of problems or things that I'm unable to deal with or kind of get over, but he's so super critical of everyone else outside of him, right? Like, yes, there is this person, you know, that Thorwald is something else, you know, Thorwald's wife is nagging blah, blah, all these other people have all these issues, but he has none, which is, I guess, what's ironic about it. Because we know as a viewer, obviously, that there's issues there with him.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that, and that is the irony of Jeff, isn't it? That while he's so consumed with the behaviours and the faults of others and in monitoring and surveilling everyone else, he is then unable, there's no need for him to look inwardly and assess his own situation.
2: I think that's so cool if we're, again, making parallels with, like, modern society, how much of we're always looking outward, we're always putting like the best of ourselves on social media. we always seeing people's out outward lives, right? The fantastic events they're going to, you know, their engagements, their new house. Uh we're always seeing kind of the highlight reel, but we're never seeing the kind of dirty, fringy kind of stuff of people's lives. Um, yeah. so and when people do too.
0: share that, it's uncomfortable and no one wants to to read or hear about it. You know, that doesn't that's not what gets the likes. interesting um this topic about I uh, like this this struggle jeff is representative of, of, of the struggle of modern masculinity because uh the masculinity that he is engaging with in the 50s a lot of people would argue will say to us well that's not that's not the way masculinity is today and yet i i wonder was um has has anything really changed and in the last 50 60 70 ooh, 70 years in regards to the way we judge others and the way that we define ourselves, perhaps through what we do as opposed to who we are. And maybe from this discussion, I'm answering my question myself and saying, well, no, not much has changed what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman in our society.
2: I guess even the portrayals of women and men in the film and I guess relationships and marriages are also quite, not negative, but... They're not, you know, they're not presented with rose-coloured glasses. And I think, you know, you see the relationship or the marriage between Thorwald and his wife, and that ends in violent murder. Um, And then you've got kind of the contrast of that, which is a newlywed couple also who are kind of all lovey-dovey. You know, their relationship is perfect. But then we see that kind of fall as well at the end of the movie where they start having their first fights. I don't know. And then you've got the relationship with Jeff, or Jeffries and Lisa too, which is, you know, marriage doesn't serve the man it's only for the woman or if you're not in a marriage you're also hopelessly unhappy and want to kill yourself you know a la with lonely hearts um so there's kind of i don't know maybe this is taking like a grim turn but um, right I don't know it's not really presented in a very positive way um, and i think even today we have phrases of you know happy what happy happy wife happy life kind of like this, that stereotype of women are nagging wives and men are kind of always looking to you know, run or <laughs> to, you know, try to escape. find some sort of freedom, which I don't know, I think there's a parallel there also. Whether that's true for everyone, I, I don't think that's true, but I think it's still
1: there. It, it is interesting that, you know, Lisa Fremont, played by Grace Kelly in this, this sort of quintessential role where she's really, um, you know, the camera loves her and there's these you know, sort of long-held gazes at her and she's really there um, to portray the ultimate kind of, quintessential idea of female beauty, mm. um, and yet she is a sexually assertive career woman. That so For the 1950s audience, this could have been quite remarkable. And she herself is her that the audience is drawn to. Now, um, interestingly, Jeff Lesso, um, you know, he sort of ignores her, or overlooks her, or is happy to put up with her, but he sees her as potentially in, entrapping him Within the confines of marriage, which he's looking at, and while he's watching it, it doesn't seem to be in any way attractive to him. And he's, you know, he's literally trapped in his wheelchair, so he's really, you know, powerless when she's flitting around him. But what is really fascinating, and I think probably the most fascinating aspect in terms of the narrative of the film, is that she willingly embraces, you know, eventually she embraces his idea of the Thorwald kind of murder plot. And it's once she joins in and buys his vision of, you know, potentially this is what's happened, that she becomes his, not just his eyes and his ears, but his legs. She is then, you know, his so-called man on the ground. She's active all of a sudden. She is the one that is placing herself now uh, in danger. And it's only then that Jeff sees her. So it's only when she's actually able to become the active member in that relationship when she takes charge when she is his legs that he sees her for who she really is which mm-hmm. is you know an active engaged kind of energetic woman um and it's then that he falls in love with her it's really when she takes the action and he then kind of relax into it and we see this of course in the scene where you know he's fallen, and you know she's sort of holding him in her arms, and he's gazing up at her. Uh, everything's safe; they've solved a murder plot, and they're you know united and happy. Of course, in the then the very final scene of the film, they're reclined together in this kind of scene of domestic harmony. She's wearing pants, mm. um, you know, literally and figuratively, she's now wearing the pants in the relationship. And she's reading, I think, a travel book, but, of course, she's still got her Vogue magazine hidden within there. So while she's trapped him and they are perfectly happy now in their domestic list, she is still pretending to be someone that she's not in order to hold his attention. So It's a really kind of fascinating narrative, really, on modern relationships and marriage.
0: Do you think, I know students sometimes grapple with whether Hitchcock is presenting a misogynist perspective or, or a feminist perspective, because there's to a certain extent arguments on both sides, which is one of the most fascinating parts of the film. If you you know, if I said to you, here's a pen, here's an essay topic, off you go, what would you what would you say his message is? Is it is it advocating for women to behave like Lisa in order to get what they want? Is it is that problematic?
2: I think I'd be on the fence, but I'm just thinking there's this kind of threat of a woman having to, I guess not change herself, but she's kind of complete when there's a man in the picture. So you've got Lisa who finally is able to kind of cement her relationship when she does something for him. Mm. I don't know. And then you've got even Miss Lonely Hearts who only becomes, you know, less depressed when she, you know, meets someone. You're the composer.
0: Yeah. Um, the music saved her.
2: Yeah. Mm. So it's just there's a reliance there on a woman's happiness, yeah, if she's got a man in her life, which doesn't seem very <laughs> feminist. Uh, but then you've got what Lisa talked about with you no know, Hitchcock shows a woman being assertive and being active and being able to do something, but then counters that with, you know, her having to pretend she's reading a book when really she's reading Vogue. So he kind of always, he kind of goes part part way and then kind of... Backtracks? Backtracks, yeah. He backtracks by doing something else. So, yeah, I don't know. I'd be on the fence, I think.
1: <laughs> I, I actually think that's already... Everybody- It's a difficult question to answer and it would be a particularly difficult um, question for students to grapple with. I think probably the the approach that you would take is that the, the broader picture is that it's a dark take on human relationships. And what it does is it sort of exposes the sort of seedy, underbelly, our dark vulnerabilities that we only really see once we're in interaction with other humans in those kind of close confines and in close relationships. I do think that you can't discuss this as a sort of feminist theories of Rear Window without talking about Laura Mulvey's um, take on the male gaze. Um, And this, of course, was first. She's a theorist that referred to this in um, her 1975 Um, visual pleasure and narrative cinema, in which she claims that narrative film is all constructed around aligning the viewer with the position of the heterosexual male, Mm. so that anyone who engages in the act of viewing film is placed then in the position of a straight man looking at women as objects of desire regardless of your own position. And this is absolutely the case in Rear Window. We are all in awe of the beauty of Grace Kelly in this film and that is absolutely deliberate. She is as stunningly beautiful to everyone watching it. it's unavoidable. That is her role. The irony, of course, is that we're all quite taken with her and Jeff's a little bit ambivalent. And, of course, his ambivalent is driven by his fear of commitment. But Mulvey would argue that the viewer identifies with the active male protagonist and it turns the, the female figure then into an object defined by her beauty. And as a as feminist viewers this is highly problematic because it, it means that you know women are then viewing other women through the lens of judgment of this kind of perception, this very narrow perception of beauty. So you, you can't help but analyse this through, film through that narrow construct once you're mm-hmm. aware of, of that theory.
0: And It makes you reflect on all the times we see, Lisa... And all the 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 way in which Hitchcock positions her in the frame, the you know, I always when in teaching this text would you know, encourage students to consider the lighting, to consider the mise en scène, how she she's shot in a full length shot, which we very rarely see. Jeff, well, we can't because he can't stand up because he's impotent, but um, you know, we get those beautiful full length shots. It's almost like the back of the apartment is like a stage, and she yes. enters. With a flourish, and she turns on the lights, and you know she lights herself because she's so active. Well, she is an active, like as you mentioned, you know, assertive career woman, and also what she wears—the most beautiful designer dresses that just accentuate her figure so beautifully. (coughs) Uh, And I can't imagine running around all over the city wearing outfits like that. But yeah, I think Hitchcock very much, very much wants us. To uh,
1: appreciate her aesthetically, um, yeah, and and, and because you're right, because it, and what that highlights is that her her beauty is so staggering and so unavoidable, and yet Jeff, as I said earlier, is ambivalent. Sits and there in his pajamas. Yeah, that's right, and he's sort of amused by her or bemused even. Mm. Um, and it's he not. he's better than her he... as
2: well. I think. Yeah. But he actually thinks he's like he's, yeah he's superior to her. Yes. And and it's it's really he, not does
0: until he feel that he needs to in order to reclaim power against a woman who is so active and assertive?
1: Ooh. Or it, it's really not until she becomes more than an object of beauty, hmm. until she becomes assertive, until she is his arms and legs, until she's entering the apartment and placing herself in danger, until she is active in a very quite masculine way that he appreciates her and ironically for much more than her beauty mm. she
0: also incidentally in that scene where she climbs up into Thorwald's apartment becomes the subject of his gaze Yes. Through, physically through the camera which i think is is something to note that and I've, you know that jeff sees lisa actually sees her for the first time yes through his long his long range camera lens which, um, as you know, some critics have have his phallic reference. object, yeah, yeah. It is a phallic object and a representation, you know, of his masculine power. So this, yeah, there's so many nuances. Yes, in your Window, it's very. I find it's very hard to really feel very settled about which way we want to, you know, our interpretation of of, of the film. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, it's funny that it's it's not. Um, You know, straight after the film where he's watching her climb into the apartment, be his arms and legs, it's then he who is trapped in his apartment with Thorwald looming over him. And then we've got these large kind of, you know, this incredibly suspenseful scene, the um, shadows of Thorwald. And now Jeff is the weaker one. Uh, And of course, then in the final scene, when Lisa's reading the Vogue magazine with the, the travel book with the Vogue magazine hidden inside it, it's really then suggesting that, you know, married life is just a series of smoke and mirrors. It's a bit of a dance into which the couple enter in which they're hiding, you know, the elements of their true selves.
2: What well, even like, a really basic example would just be, like, Miss Torso? Her name yeah. literally comes from a body part. She right. doesn't even have a proper name. Like, if we, like, move away from just thinking about Lisa, um, yeah. yeah, Miss Torso. And but, she's definitely <laughs> objectified by... 100%. And all we by see of her is, you know, all these kind of suitors come to her, you know, to her apartment. Um, and then we later find out that she's just been waiting for, you know, sa- the sailor? sailor.
1: Stanley. Did she say, like, Stan-
2: Stanley? Was he a sailor?
1: Or yeah, in the army, or some kind of like, military man, isn't he? He's <laughs> Some kind of military man, yeah. Who he
0: pushes he's straight faster and goes for the fridge, mind you. Like, <laughs> he's, not, he's not. He didn't say it. He's just hungry.
2: But I think again, like there's kind of all these the stereotypes again. You know, <laughs> Jeffreys thinks of Lisa as just this socialite, dressed as well, is someone who would be unable to kind of function in his world. You know, his world as a photojournalist, be you know, to get down and dirty and, you know all these weird places of the world. then again we see that stereotype with miss torso who he just sees her as someone who you know just likes to flirt around likes having men over you know likes to be fawned over and it's only lisa who's able to go well she's kind of you know balancing what's it what's the quote like balancing wolves or something like that um it's only lisa who's actually able to see the position that she's in whereas the male jeffries just sees her as you know objectifies her She's just a torso. She's just there for the intention of men when he's got it completely wrong in the end anyway. So, I don't yeah, know.
1: And Miss Torso is also, she's a, a caricature. She's presented for much of the film until right at the end as a caricature. And I, when I've taught this film, it's been at an all-girls school. And in those scenes when she's bouncing about the apartment, you know, um, in a bikini doing her exercises... Purely for the sort of titivation of an imagined audience, you know, she's not to know she's being watched. You can hear the girls groaning, you know, so that's because <laughs> she's just such a terrible cliche, this kind of Barbie-like figure bouncing about her apartment and then flitting from man to man. Jeff views her that way too with a kind of sneering judgment. Um, he's happy to sit and watch her in his stifling hot apartment. It gives him something to do. But he's certainly also kind of, again, superior in his judgment of her and how she's living her life. But certainly for modern audiences, they, they buy into this construct, construct of this sort of bimbo figure. And it is a shock then to, to find that she's been biding her time, fighting loneliness, you know, waiting for her man to return from the war.
2: And then he's also superior when you've got Miss Lonely Hearts below, you know, on the ground floor. That she's always alone, that she's never with any men. Um, So it's like in his eyes, a woman can never win. You know, she can't mm. be too beautiful. She can't, you know, accept attention from men. But she also shouldn't be so alone that men are never over. So it's like, who is this woman that he actually wants? Fucking like of this magic, this woman who doesn't exist. It's yeah. just like, who does he Imaginary.
1: want? Imaginary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because Jeff is also unlikable in his his views uh, mm. of Miss Lonely Hearts too. He's you know because we see she's presented uh, almost as initially as an object of derision and then as an object of some sympathy when we see that she's almost suicidal in her loneliness that her grief is sort of palpable and but jeff <laughs> remains sneering and judgmental you know of her to the end yeah
2: hmm. i guess it shows also the power of uh, i guess society's expectations isn't it like i guess we see jeffrey's point of view but also that I guess she uh, alternate Miss Lonely Hearts feels as though she needs to meet some sort of expectation. She needs to find a man um, and because she's unable to do so, that leads her to kind of this, you know, despair and, you know, nearly you know, committing suicide until, you know, she hears the music. She's, a, she's also a victim of, of, of sexual violence
0: too. I yeah, mean, yeah, when that's, she finally, yeah, hmm. when a man does come over, yeah, that's met with violence and. Yeah. And she, you know, fights him off and pushes him away. And I think it happens really quickly that that little you know cut scene and suddenly we're on to the next thing with with Jeff and Lisa and and Hitchcock doesn't spend a lot of time interrogating that it's just it's just there and yet I can imagine that would have been quite shocking for the time period or maybe not even worse maybe not shocking because that was a reality for 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 women who were who were alone and and
1: powerless yeah and it still is and, in mm-hmm. fact, we, we, yeah, we know violence against women to be more prevalent within domestic relationships. And, of course, that's presented through Thorwald and his treatment of his wife. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm.
0: She, it's interesting. I know, um, you know, I've seen from a from a technical um, standpoint the way that Hitchcock frames them in, in different windows, you know, to, to indicate their their disconnect. And she gets a very short... We, we overhear briefly something that she she's... Kind of demeaning him about the food he has brought to her, so she's definitely you know Anna Thorwood is, is not um, characterized positively, and then she dies. Mm. And
1: the film doesn't interrogate the, how that at all. So awful it, that is.: You're right. So th- what drives the plot of this film is the murder of a woman. Yes. Who is presented, if at all, as difficult to please and voiceless,
2: and Almost deserving of what happens to her? Is that what we're supposed to feel?
1: Yeah, that's we have problem. no engagement in this woman's life. We have no interest in her other than as a um, murder victim. Mm. It's forward that we want to get at, but there is no engagement. In fact, you know, we know nothing about her, and that's quite deliberate and cold and calculated. She's very removed. And as an audience, that's not what we want to know. What we want to know at the end is what happens to Lisa and Jeff? Mm-hmm. Oh, what happened to this poor dead woman? What about the rest of her family? You know, how did this happen? This dead woman exists purely as a plot device and we, we feel quite removed from her.
2: And the focus, exactly. I guess, coming back to the gaze as well, like we are just thinking about Thorwald, like why did why did he do it? Like you know, is it because she was a nagging wife and that's why he did it and that's all we care about and there's nothing more to examine there, like... We don't yeah, care. and I
1: think they exist to inform Jeff's views of relationships.
2: 100%. They kind of show that his views are correct, right? That yeah. this is what ultimately happens in marriages, that they're always unhappy um, and he'll become like Thorwald, you know, unhappy, yeah. unpleasant. Yeah, that women are
1: nagging um, shrews that are never happy that marriage is a form of entrapment for men uh, and Jeff believes he's wise to avoid it, that he's not going to fall into the same trap as others. Even the newlyweds who we know, um, you know, presented as very happy, he again thinks he has some kind of superior knowledge that this is something that they will, this will be a short-lived period of kind of sexual fulfilment and then not long after the newlyweds will settle into kind of domestic... Drudgery like the Thorvalds, and you know who knows, one of them could end up. Well, the woman may well end up dead. I mean, they, this is just
0: <laughs> of
1: relationship,
0: which justifies his very poor treatment of of the the women in his life, yeah. including Stella, who we haven't touched on yet in this discussion. Oh, I love
2: Stella so yeah. much.
0: Yeah, I think we need to bring her in because she, I would argue, presents to us like one of the more meaningful representations of marriage and of relationships and of domestic fulfilment in her discussing her husband. How can we draw her into a discussion of, of Jeff and of marriage and, and all these elements that we're, we're exploring?
2: I think at one point in the film, she, doesn't she say something along the lines of like, you know, we've both got our kind of, idiosyncrasies or like peculiarities or something like that, but they still accept each other for who they are. And and I guess that kind of is a very different to Jeffrey's, where Jeffrey's is, is like, he either wants it all good or all you can only think in black and white, right? Lisa is this or she is that, you know, Miss Torso is this or that. Whereas what Stella is presenting here is that people are grey, that they have their, you know, positive you know, good attributes as well as the things that make them not so likeable. But Stella is saying that's what marriage is about, is about being able to accept the thing, accept both, right? And that's what makes, I guess, a successful relationship or a successful marriage.
1: Mm. Whereas, yeah, look, no, you know, Stella like. is fascinating. She's a really fascinating character. She's sardonic. She's shrewd. She's really cunning. She gets right to the heart of matters. She's quick-witted. She quickly puts, she's got Jeff's number. She puts him back in his place in a way that no one else could, really. And she's also acutely observant of human behaviour. But, and so when she dishes out advice to Jeff, of course, he ignores it. But she's also largely, she's a very powerful, quite a powerful woman. Um, in this film, but of course she's largely asexual. You know, she's certainly not. Um, so when she's dishing out advice about marriage, I think he takes it with a grain of salt. But the really fascinating thing about Stella is, she's scathing, um, initially, of Jeff, Jeff, and his tendency. You know, to be looking out the window and watching others. And you know, she tells him, of course, that
0: he's you know, a tom and you will go to jail. Well, that's right. She sort
1: of sees it as a form of evil, really. She's quite sort of morally damning of of, um, what he's doing. Um, But, of course, she then gets drawn into it too. So there is this train of thought that Stella represents the film viewer who initially is watching Jeff and is really, you know, as we're watching Jeff, we're quite damning of him as well, although we're drawn in because it's fascinating. Who doesn't love looking at others and working out what goes on behind closed doors? But you know, she represents the film viewer in that we too get caught up in the mystery that Jeff is investigating. And this is where Hitchcock is so clever. And it's because the viewer is often just one step ahead of Jeff. So we see the suspense, you know, we we are completely caught up in it. This is and this is again a really wonderful thing about teaching this text to young people. There's a point at which initially you start playing the film and it's black and white and you see them think, oh, God, what is this here? And then, you know, halfway through the film, you can hear a pin drop. And this is sort of collective sigh. It's almost pantomime because we're so drawn in to the narrative as it unfolds. And we are just one step ahead of Jeff. We know that Thorwald's coming for him. You know, we see that he's trapped. This is, you know, incredible sort of suspense and tension, which, of course... Um, you know, Hitchcock was so masterful at.
0: I think there's only two times in the film that we see something that Jeff doesn't see too in that very clever means of storytelling. So one when he falls asleep and we see the woman leaving Thorwald's That's apartment.
1: Right. Yes.
0: And the final scene when he's asleep and we see Lisa. So that idea of, you know, we have a very subjective viewpoint in the film, but that's part of how Hitchcock does develop tension and, and yeah. suspense. Mm. Um, and I think any discussion of Hitchcock has to draw in that that acknowledgement of the way that he constructs meaning. And I think there's a lovely quote where he says, you know, when he's talked about filmmaking, he doesn't want a boo scary situation. You know, he's a little bit demeaning, I think, of uh, filmmakers who use that kind of jump scare because there's no lead up and there's no payoff whereas the tension and the suspense that he builds lead to a much more fulfilling payoff because we're, we're drawn in and it leads up through, like you've said, this, this pin drop idea of our students in the classroom being completely drawn into this film that they never perhaps would have selected on Netflix, you know, uh, would used to say at Blockbuster, but no longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, we also talk eggplant. about my Run. other
2: favourite scene of the film, which oh, is yeah. um, the dog dog being killed? Oh yes. yes. I yeah. love that's your
0: favorite scene, Cora, the one where the, the dog gets killed. <laughs> I don't know whether
2: <laughs> I just, tell us why, Cora. I think it gets to the heart of like I guess what was being seen there, but maybe is more I guess prevalent now is people not knowing their neighbors and having this thing unfold, you know this, the murder of the dog, and I guess even you can make that parallel too with the killing of Mrs. Forward and no one knowing that it's happened no one saw it Um, and no one even reacts to when the owner is kind of having this massive diatribe about how terrible it is and how you know people aren't neighbours anymore like there's no reaction it's just it's such a disconnect I guess of like people used to know people's neighbours they used to know who they lived next to you know they would have taken cakes over they would have known everything about those people's lives and now we just see that there's that total that connection has Totally eroded now in modern life, and I don't know. Just something so cool about that dog moment. Like, do you think think it's interesting that that's
0: that's? I think the one, one of the few times that the camera leaves the apartment and we get uh kind of some close-ups of the different characters'
2: faces. Is that would that be part of the the interest for you? Do you think? I think so, but also just the lack of any emotional connection. Like, you have this kind of quite graphic, violent moment, and no one cares. They're always like looking and staring at this woman as if she's the crazy one, where she's the one actually like spitting out all this truth. And they're the ones that are really unable to understand what she's trying to get at. And I think and even we get
0: close-ups she... of them, don't we? We, get the, we actually get close-ups of their faces for the first time. We see Miss Torso's face, in, in mm. but yet there's no emotion there.
2: There's no, like, care whatsoever. And if we think about even, like, Miss Lonely Hearts and... I guess the isolation that f- she feels, not only just an isolation of, like, no men in her life, but also of, like, no connections to others. You know, you take if we take into account, like, the setting of the film, you know, they're all living on top of each other. Oh, like, yeah, it's a dark, I guess, portrayal of human nature. and mm. it is,
1: certainly, It's certainly a dark take on relationships because it ends... Uh, You know, again, with Jeff and Lisa sitting in this scene of sort of supposed domestic harmony and yet, you know, their marriage or their relationship, their union is based on a lie. Well, they both look very happy and they both certainly look content. She's reading her Vogue magazine hidden, you know, within a travel book. So, you know, it's about pretense. Relationships are about pretense.
0: Did anyone learn anything in the film? Do you think?
2: I was just thinking, like with Jeffries, you know, like he has all these theories about Thorwald, often without any proof, right? Like for most mm. of the film, he doesn't actually have the proof to actually say, well, this is they killed his wife. And what he does is ultimately only okay because Thorwald ends up having killed her, like his wife. Right. had it had that not been the case, the fact that Thor ends up being guilty means that what Jeffries does is okay. So in yeah. that way, he doesn't have to learn anything, right? Because his intuition led him to the right. I guess affirmed what he thought. But had you know, had that not been correct, maybe he would have been in a position to learn something about you know the fact that watching people is not okay. You know that making judgments, you know, snap judgments about people is not okay. But that kind of transformation or you know learning doesn't actually happen for Jeffries because he ends up being correct. So maybe to yet yeah, to that respect, no, I don't think. He learns anything. It's interesting,
0: isn't it? Because Hitchcock could have had it either way. He could have written the film so that there was no murder, and Anna Thor just went on a holiday to visit her family. So why yeah. is it that he? I guess yeah, like you said, like justifies Jeffrey's uh, obsession. He's even like to go as far as like his scopophilia through mm-hmm. him discovering the truth about a murder, which in some ways vindicates him and his behaviour.
1: It does, and I think students need to deal with this. I think that in the end, Jeff's voyeurism is vindicated mm. uh, because he had a theory and it's proven. Mm. Um, now, it has, you know, Jeff's been watching through the lens of suspicion about human relationships, and his watching has informed his view, but he is correct. He has, in fact, you know, he and Lisa and Stella, in fact, solve a murder, and it, it does, in the end, justify his watching. His intrusive watching.
2: Which is quite interesting, right? Considering that if we take into the context, you know, it's made in the nineteen fifties, you know, during the Cold War, you know, in this McCarthyist era, you'd suspect that Hitchcock would be, I guess, being critical of the fact that this is that the government was trying to shut down people from or I guess they were not like well, they were blacklisting, you know, many of Hitchcock's contemporaries, right? You know, all these artists and things like that that they believe were communist, you know, sympathizers. Uh, so it's quite interesting that Hitchcock is in a position here to say, well, you no, know, or oh, does he maybe? Like, I was just about to say that he would be in a position to say, you know, having proof is, you know, paramount, that he should have proof to say someone is something or not. Whereas that doesn't, does that happen in this film? Like, does he, does that have so the evidence? He gets
0: the wedding ring, which does function in some ways as pr- like proof.
2: And the FBI guy doesn't act on anything until he has proof, right?
0: No, Doyle, no. He,
2: he Does he needs have any proof? proof. Yeah, because he needs proof, right, which I guess mm. is Hitchcock saying, well, we should have proof before we charge anyone or before we believe someone is something, which is what is not happening during the time that this film is made.
0: I think it's also interesting because within that McCarthy time period, people were starting to observe their neighbours and report on their neighbours as well. We had that kind of, it didn't get as far as perhaps other you know, communities like, you know, the GDR or what was happening um, in Europe. But there was some reporting on people. And, like, my gut wants to say that Hitchcock should be criticising a society from watching each other in their in our private moments and then, you know, informing, I
2: guess, on them. Oh, there's that great quote from Doyle, right? Oh, that's right. I wrote it down because it was one of my favourite kind of moments. Oh, yeah. Because Doyle actually says, that's a scene. Secret and private world you're looking into out there. People do a lot of things in private they couldn't possibly explain public. So mm. I think that's what you're saying there. The kind of comes to the heart of privacy. You know what's private and what's public, and you know what Jeffries is doing is yeah, explo- not exploiting, but he's entering that private world that he shouldn't be. That's not for him to watch or to look at or to judge. I um, mean, he does anyway. So and in discovering the murderer is vindicated.
1: Yeah, it's okay for him Which to do that. Mm. Uh, again, I think our, our, our biggest clues about this uh, is the role of Stella, in that Stella is initially um, very critical of Jeff, who he's watching, but she joins in. So I think perhaps what Hitchcock is saying is that it is human nature to watch others, that we are, you know, human beings are by our very nature observant of one another that we belong living within communities. And even when there's a level of level of disconnectedness within that communities, we are still drawn to watching one another. You only have to look at how we all sit around in our own homes and watch reality television, mm-hmm. or, you know, we, we watch what people present to us on social media. We are fascinated by the lives of others. And I think this is part and parcel of Uh, you know, humanity, of being a a member of a community for its faults and its flaws. And perhaps, too, that what we see informs our own views. Um, So if we are critical of human relations and and relationships and we look out the window, then we will see, in fact, damaged relationships to be feared. Um, And if our views are otherwise, then what we will see are happy relationships. Uh, You know, I think he's saying that if you look to find certain things, that's what you will find. And again, that's why it's so interesting for, for students because it it forces them to question their narrative view and their perspectives, which is what Hitchcock wanted. Yeah, which I, so I think it's just more broader than just surveillance is bad or you know voyeurism is is negative. I think he's saying that when we when we look, it's about what we seek to find, and in fact, we are often seeking to find things that inform our already formed views and values. (laughs) Confirmation bias, is that what that is? Yes, it's exactly what it
0: is, yeah. I think um, one fair argument, if anything, that we can make about Hitchcock is that he does delve in the grey, you know, ironically in a black and white film he very Mm. much um, highlights to us the grey. And I think that comment uh, about Stella, Lisa, I really like because I believe at the end of the film... Doyle, I think, asks so if someone offers to see if she'd like to see what was in one of the boxes with the the body, and she says, "No, no, so like, no, no, that's that's kind of too far. That's too far." So if she's the representation of the viewer, we get sucked in with Jeffries because we think that there has a there's justification. There's a murder has occurred, and we need to be part of that. But once that has been solved, Stella then reverts and goes, "No, I'm done looking now. The looking." The time for looking has ended.
1: Because what it's revealed is the seedy underbelly of humanity and we actually don't want to know about that.
0: No. No, we,
1: we don't. We now know too much. Thanks very much. <laughs> it's confirmed all our suspicions. Our biases have been affirmed and thank you, but we're out of here now. So we, do, we don't want to ponder human the, the um, complexities of human relationships. We don't really want to know what makes people cheap. We don't want to know why their relationship went wrong we've gone whoops okay thanks very much too much and that's really how the film ends doesn't it Mm. and let's just go
0: back into our nice pseudo domestic bliss and 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 keep pretending and read our vogues hidden behind over the high himalayas she's reading at the end I do wonder then if that does bring me to my somehow this happens the, my, my big my, my, the big question my big question ladies which is what's the point of rear window why do we study it why have the VCAA chosen it if students had to take one take one takeaway from this discussion which I hope there's more than one because we've
1: talked about some big ticket items today what what's the point well, I think the point of the film, I think Hitchcock's point of the film and why we study it are quite different, but as to get to where we started, which is where we're really coming at it from the same position, which is, as human beings, we have a profound need to be connected, to be a member of a community, um, to exist within relationships, yet at the same time we are critical of one another within the community, we are fascinated by each other's private lives and yet we are judgmental about one another's private lives we can't help uh, but look and ponder and wonder about everyone else but we remain disconnected as the woman with the dog says nobody cares we're all neighbors but nobody cares if anybody lives or dies you know there, there is this sense of us all being in this together and yet being quite separate entities and I think you know this remains the case whether we're in 2020 or 1954 but it has the added layer now a nuance and complexity for our um teenage audience who are who have grown up in a surveillance state and in a state of you know surveying others
2: everything's they're being using, recorded you know like
1: everything's being recorded being there's
2: photos that document every kind of moment of their lives since they were born you know, the most embarrassing moments from primary school there's videos of.
1: <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. and yet it's our role as teachers to get them to question the dominant, the dominant narrative, to be suspicious and critical of positions that they're being fed by the media, of being aware of media manipulation and Hitchcock, of course, is deliberately positioning his audience to have a particular gaze. Mm-hmm. And so this is a gift for teachers because it's it, really encourages students to analyse how they're being positioned to look and see and experience. Yes.
2: I think a lot of the same stuff that Lisa was just saying, but I think, I guess, touching on, like, we've never been more connected but also more disconnected. I think Lisa kind of touched that on already, but, you know, we do, we live in such kind of close confines now, but we've never known people less. And even though we think that we're all connected, we've got all this social media and we can watch anything we like and, you know, push it a push of a button, I guess there's no kind of substitute for, I don't know, human connection and actually knowing people both for their good and their bad and people aren't going to be, you know, perfect. They're not always going to be what we think that they are. There's always something more to people to discover. Um, and if we don't make that, if we don't put in that effort, then we'll never discover that. If we're happy to kind of always live behind computer screens and always seek to document rather than to experience, then we're not really having real humanity.
1: Um, well, you right. You're right, Cora. It's about the, the documenting rather than the lived experience is also what increases our sense of isolation and aloneness. Mm. And while Hitchcock's views of humanity and relationships are quite dark, um, I think he does have a gentle kind of sympathy for loneliness and for the lonely characters in this film. And so I think really what, what he's saying is that loneliness is, an aspect of modern life that while we can live on top of one another we can still feel quite lonely and disconnected and he has particular sympathy for those characters I like
0: this idea of the the documenter of life versus the lived experience mm. for our current lives but also for Jeffreys, the fact that he's a photographer which we touched on earlier that he is almost you know the original
2: vlogger <laughs> vlogger
0: Yes, yeah. Instagram yes.
2: influencer.
0: <laughs> influencer. Like I can imagine. You know, had it had this film been set in 2020, um, he would be. He would probably be vlogging his experiences and, and his and his questions because he does. He 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 does. He documents. I'd never thought of that. It's actually kind of blown my mind. Which is mm. one of the things that I love about this podcast is I get to speak to. Fabulous teachers like yourselves and have some of my perspectives a little bit challenged, I think, or or make me think about the text. It's amazing that a text that we, I know that we have all been teaching or have taught for years that I can sit and have a conversation three or four years later and go, wow, yeah, I'd never thought of it that way. And I hope that whoever is listening today feels the same.
1: I also think it's a beauty of a great text, that it's just open to many interpretations and, you know, I think that's why VCAR chooses these texts, so that students can make of it, bring their own perspectives, have a formed and critical position and, you know, therefore write in a really interesting way about a text that, you know, we as examiners will read many, many responses about. If you can make it as varied and as interesting and, you know, bring your own views and positions to light, then you will, you know, the, the text will be more enjoyable for you and... <laughs> a much more pleasant reading experience for the examiners. Absolutely. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. We're all for that, yes.
0: <laughs> Thank you both for your time today. Um, it's funny, I always have an idea about what we're going to talk about and then in the end that's not really where we went. Um, it went, it went uh, somewhere else, but I kind of like where it went, which suggests that we may need to have further conversations about this film or about, about other texts. But yeah, thank you so much for your time. And thank you. Thanks, Claire. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. It has. Big thanks to Cora Alvarez and Lisa Hanlon for some truly excellent conversation. If you like this episode, please subscribe and please share with any other students, year 12, VCE, English students, or teachers that you may know who could enjoy this episode. And follow and participate in the conversation further on Instagram at Teachers Talk Texts. Any questions, comments, feedback, I'd love to hear it. Thanks so much
2: everyone. Bye.